Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning we're looking at Judges chapter 11. As you're turning there, I remind you that last week we really hit a turning point in the book of Judges. Because while the first half of the book certainly highlighted Israel's sin and pursuit of the gods of the surrounding nations, the second half of Judges grows increasingly dark as the consequences of generations of sin and hundreds of years of Israel living amongst the Canaanite nations leads Israel's beliefs and actions to be more and more sinful. Last week, as a result of their sin, we saw that the Lord handed Israel over to the nations, to the Ammonites in the east and the Philistines to the west, and then the Lord refused to simply show up and save Israel at their first request. And yet, despite that response from the Lord, the Lord is merciful And this week and in the coming weeks, we'll see him use even two questionable characters to save Israel from the Ammonites and the Philistines through Jephthah this week and Samson in the weeks to come. But today we focus on Jephthah, and I want to read Judges chapter 11 together. We'll briefly refer to chapter 12 as well, but we'll just read chapter 11. So follow along as we read God's word this morning. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites again made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, do you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us if we do not do so as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come out to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said to him, Thus said Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, 
Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived at the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please, let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, three hundred years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, for you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Let's pray. 
God, this is your word. This is what happened among your people. And though it shocks us, I pray that you would use it as a warning to our hearts and to draw us near to Christ this morning. We pray it in his name. Amen. In the spring of 1992, Chris McCandless headed down the Stampede Trail in Alaska to spend the summer in the wilderness. He took with him only a 10-pound bag of rice, a guide to edible plants, and a 22 with some ammo. Now, while things all seemed to go well at first, at least according to Chris's journal, in September, his body was found dead in an abandoned bus off the trail. And John Krakauer, in his investigative bestseller, Into the Wild, suggests that Chris's instincts and his plans were good. What he planned could have worked out. But he made two wrong assumptions that did him in. First, he assumed that he could get back down the trail if anything went badly, not knowing that the little Teklanika Creek that he passed would become a raging torrent of snowmelt by June, which would trap him for the coming months. And second, Chris incorrectly assumed that since the wild potatoes he ate in the spring were good, the seeds of the plant would be edible later in the summer, not knowing they had toxins that would contribute to his death. He had good instincts and good plants, but he made two wrong assumptions that did him in. I think we could make a similar assessment of Jephthah this morning. Jephthah has many right instincts. His words and actions are done before the Lord, and he steps out in faith to fight Israel's enemies. But in the face of Jephthah's right instincts, he makes a few wrong assumptions, demonstrating that his understanding of the Lord is shaped more by the culture and the nations around him than by the word of God. And in the face of these right instincts, his wrong assumptions lead to his downfall. A downfall that takes place in this story that traces the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I want to follow that outline, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as we work through this text this morning. So let's start with the good, which largely takes up verses 1 through 29, where we see Jephthah's instincts to trust the Lord and act before him. We see it in Jephthah's response to the leaders of Gilead. Jephthah, we learn, like Abimelech before him, was the son of a prostitute, and so his brothers kicked him out. But unlike Abimelech, Jephthah hatches no plot to take over. Rather, he goes to the land of Tob, beyond the boundaries of Israel, where he gathers worthless fellows around him and demonstrates enough strength and leadership that when the Ammonites press Gilead, the elders come out to ask Jephthah to be their leader. Now, Jephthah seems a bit skeptical of their response. He says, look, you've kicked me out. You've hated me. You're going to come to me now when you're in trouble? Sounds a lot like the Lord's response in chapter 10, didn't it? I've saved you again and again, and you're going to come cry for me after all this rejection? But after some negotiation and discussion, Jephthah agrees to lead Gilead with the assurance that he will be accepted and recognized as Gilead's leader after the battle. And while the leaders of Gilead seem to have no thought for the Lord whatsoever, they don't pursue the Lord, they don't go to the Lord in prayer, they don't seek the Lord's guidance, Jephthah appears to hold everything before the Lord. He says in verse 9 that he will defeat the Ammonites if the Lord gives them over to him. 
And in verse 11, it says that Jephthah spoke all of his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And that phrase, before the Lord, is regularly used in the Scripture in the Old Testament to indicate that a person is acting in the presence of the Lord and acknowledges the Lord's authority over what is happening. We continue then to get a good impression of Jephthah in his exchange with the king of the Ammonites in verses 12 through 28. Jephthah challenges the Ammonite king. And he writes an impressive response to the king's claims, demonstrating himself to be a capable and well-informed lawyer, establishing the innocence of, of Israel and its history. Of course, the Ammonite king ignores Jephthah's argument, but we would expect nothing less from a king who's just out for a land grab. But notice, and, and here's what I want us to notice in this passage, notice the detailed and accurate history of Israel's movements that Jephthah clearly knows well. 300 years may have passed since the Exodus. Generations of Israelites may have rejected the Lord in favor of idols, but it is not because they did not know the Lord or what He had done. There is still a detailed knowledge of the Lord in Israel over these generations. Notice also not only Jephthah's knowledge of the Lord's salvation, but notice how Jephthah acknowledges the Lord Himself. In verses 21 to 25... Jephthah clearly says that the Lord, the God of Israel, gave them this land, and their right to the land rests on his power and his provision. Jephthah says he saved us from Egypt, he gave us this land, and we live here by his will. In verse 27, Jephthah goes further to declare that if Ammon does attack Israel, the Lord is judge. That is who he is, and the Lord will decide who is in the right. And so we see in Jephthah's words the right instincts as he talks correctly about who God is, the judge, the sovereign one. And as Jephthah speaks his words before the Lord as he goes to battle. In fact, by the time we come to verse 29 and read that the spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah, we have good reason for hope. Of course, while the spirit of the Lord can use anyone good or bad to accomplish his purposes so far we have a good report of Jephthah's instincts words and actions and when the spirit of the Lord comes upon him we look forward to the Lord's rescue but then we get to verse 30 and it's in verse 30 that things begin to go from good to bad because it's here we find out that though Jephthah had regard for the Lord, his assumptions about the Lord and the way he talks to the Lord and worships the Lord are wrong. And they are more patterned after the world and the Canaanite culture around him than by the word of God. Because it's in verse 30 that we read that Jephthah made a vow saying, Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now perhaps we can sympathize with Jephthah a little bit here. He had stepped out publicly and said that the Lord would give the Ammonites into his hand. But here he is on the eve of battle. Maybe he's looking across the valley at the camp of the Ammonites. This people who have crushed Israel for 18 straight years. And maybe Jephthah starts to think, is victory really possible? Do I know for sure that the Lord's going to give them over into my hands? And doubt and some uncertainty comes into his mind. 
But I want you to compare Jephthah's response in this situation to the way Israel had responded in the same situation at other times. In Numbers chapter 21, Israel faced a battle. It was the first battle that they were going to fight after they'd been turned away from the promised land because of their own unbelief. Certainly they might have some question, is the Lord going to fight for us or not? And they made a vow to the Lord. But their vow to the Lord was, if you hand this people over, we will obey your voice and commit the cities to destruction. See, their vow was not an extravagant offering. It was a promise. God, we disobeyed you last time, but we will obey your word if you give us the victory. Or maybe compare Gideon. Gideon was uncertain on the eve of his battle as well, right? Remember his, his uncertainty. God, are you going to hand the Moabites over, the Midianites over to me? But what did Gideon do? In the face of his fear, Gideon prayed and asked God for a sign that would assure him of God's character. God, will you assure me of your power, of your sovereignty, and of your intent to save your people? And God gladly and graciously answered that prayer, giving him the sign of the fleeces and also of the dream of the the Midianite soldier, which comforted Gideon. Jephthah does not do either of these. He does not vow obedience to the Lord according to God's own word, nor does he pray to the Lord and ask for an assurance of God's character. Instead, he makes a promise of an extravagant sacrifice if the Lord will just hand his enemies into his hand. Of course, that's exactly how the Canaanites and every nation around Israel operated. Offer enough sacrifices and the gods will respond by blessing you. And of course, for the Canaanites and the nations around them, a human sacrifice was the most persuasive offering available. But Jephthah made a wrong assumption. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, is not waiting to decide whether to bless his people based on how much his people offer him. The Lord acts sovereignly according to his will and his promises. And so Jephthah's assumptions about the Lord are more cultural than biblical. I think his wrong assumption here is a good reminder for us, if I can pause for a moment on application. It's a good moment for us to remember that God does not owe us blessing if we will pray enough or give enough, or serve enough, nor is our hope when we face difficulty or uncertainty found in doing the right things or praying enough so that God will do what we want Him to do. There is no hope found in trying to do what we need to do to get God to do what we want Him to. No hope is found in trusting the character of God, His goodness, His presence, his promises, his sovereignty, and his steadfast love for his people, such that we can trust him no matter what he does send. It is his character and whatever he sends that is our confidence and our trust, not our efforts to assure the blessing we hope for. And that leads Tim Keller to ask a question that I've pondered several times this week reading this text, and I'd commend it to you as well. He asks, how would I live and rest differently? If I was not shaken when the circumstances God sends do not meet my expectations or desires. But if I believed, based on His word and His promises, that God is completely committed to work what is best for me because of His love for me in Jesus Christ, His own Son. Let that question roll around in our minds. 
But there's a second problem with Jephthah's statement and his vow. It's not just his attitude about what he thinks about the Lord. It's also what he promises. You see, there's a lot of attempts to rescue Jephthah in this passage. And none of the attempts actually fit the text. The first attempt to rescue Jephthah is to assume that Jephthah was planning to offer an animal. That he assumed an animal would be the first thing he'd see. And the problem with his vow was just it was bad wording. If only he'd fixed up the wording a little bit, he would have been fine. But I don't think that's the case at all. I agree with all four commentators I consulted in thinking that the text and the context make it clear that Jephthah intended a human sacrifice right from the beginning. To begin, we know that the Lord knows the heart. If Jephthah had clearly and from the beginning intended an animal, he wouldn't have seen his daughter and assumed, oh, I've got to sacrifice my daughter. In fact, in Leviticus 5, verses 4 and 5, the Lord provides a way out if someone makes a rash vow that would lead to evil. When they realize it would lead to evil, they can redeem it and be forgiven. But Jephthah never goes there. Why? Because I think he intended a human sacrifice in the first place. In addition, the Hebrew is almost certainly best translated, the one who comes to meet me, not whatever comes to meet me. It also fits with the phrase, whatever comes out of the house to meet me. We don't say that a cow comes out to meet you. A person comes out to meet you. And finally, the same words and syntax used in Jephthah's vow are used again in 2 Kings 3.27 when the king of Moab offers his firstborn son as a burnt sacrifice in an effort to win a battle against Israel. And so again and again, the words in the context seem to clearly indicate that Jephthah intended a human sacrifice right from the beginning which tells us that Jephthah is thinking and acting like the Canaanites and how they think about their gods, not the way the Lord has revealed himself in his word. And so the bad of Jephthah and his vow sets the story up for the ugly in verses 34 to 40. The Lord is faithful to save Israel. And we read that the Lord gave the Ammonites into Jephthah's hand. He didn't do it because of Jephthah's vow, of course. He did it because... He can be trusted to care for his people. But as Jephthah returns in the joy of victory, as he rounds the bend coming up to his house, who should come dancing to meet him but his daughter, his only child? Now clearly, again, Jephthah doesn't have to stop and think, now wait a second, what about my vow? Did that apply to her or not? Notice what the text says. As soon as he saw her, He tore his clothes. He knows what he has vowed. And he cries out in distress. But the horror, the ugly of the story comes to fruition in verse 39. When after a two-month period of mourning, the text says, She returned to her father who did with her according to his vow. Now again, there are various efforts to rescue Jephthah here. Some have suggested that Jephthah did not actually kill his daughter but just dedicated her to the Lord in a life of singleness. But that's clearly not what he vowed. Jephthah said, I will dedicate whoever or the one who comes out of my house to the Lord as a burnt offering. And it would make no sense that Jephthah's daughter would request two months of singleness in the mountains to grieve her singleness. 
the grieving period and the mourning in Israel that becomes an annual tradition clearly indicate that she was killed, not just left unmarried. Others have said, well, at least Jephthah didn't break his vow. At least Jephthah carried out his word and was true to his word. But again, this is a false conclusion because Leviticus specifically makes provision for not fulfilling a rash vow if you discover that it would lead to evil. And child sacrifice is one of the greatest evils and abominations to the Lord in the Old Testament. No, Jephthah and his daughter go through with the vow for the same invalid reasons that Jephthah made the vow in the first place. They think the vow has something to do with God's giving them victory and showing them favor. And they dare not risk the consequences if they don't fulfill the vow to this God. So I think we have no choice to but recognize the reality of what happened. As the author of the Judges is clearly tracing for us the increasingly Canaanite mindset in Israel and its consequences on the people. In fact, if we were to go on to chapter 12, we'd find the consequences of their sin continuing to play out. Ephraim comes in a huff to Jephthah, just like they did to Gideon, upset that they weren't invited to the battle. But this time, Jephthah doesn't give a humble statement. He promptly goes to war with Ephraim, and slaughters 42,000 of them on the banks of the Jordan River. And the result is a telling assessment in chapter 12, verse 7. If you have your Bibles with you, look over at chapter 12, verse 7, where we read this, Jephthah judged Israel for six years and then died and was buried in Gilead. Do you notice what's missing in this statement? We've read enough stories of these judges to notice what's different. There is no statement here that the land had rest under Jephthah's leadership. Every other major judge to this point, Othniel, Ehud, Barak, Gideon, the text tells us that under their leadership, the land had rest for 40 years or 80 years. But that phrase is missing here. And in fact, never again in the book of Judges will we read that the land has rest. Rest is gone in the book of Judges, from the land of Israel. Because as the sin of Israel becomes more and more pronounced, even when the Lord does mercifully provide some relief from a particular oppression, the peace and the rest that had characterized God's blessing and salvation for centuries was no longer available for His people. For what rest is really possible when our minds and our hearts and our actions are governed by the world and by sin rather than by the Word of God? So how in the end do we assess a man like Jephthah? He certainly knew that the Lord was in charge, and he certainly acted in faith to step out and fight the Ammonites. We know that from the story, but we also know that from the Bible's own assessment. Hebrews eleven thirty two mentions Jephthah's faith in fighting against larger enemies of Israel. But a man may genuinely trust the Lord, and still be far more influenced by the culture than he even realizes with devastating consequences. Of course, a man may also initially respond in faith, but be choked out by the influence of the world that dominates his heart, like the seed in Jesus' parable that springs up at first, but is choked out by the cares and the influence of the world. So which is Jephthah? Is he a man of genuine faith, but is so 
dominated by the thinking of his culture that he makes this terrible vow? Or is he a man whose faith is choked out by worldly influence? I don't know for sure. I don't know if I can make a judgment. But I do know that if we love the Lord and want to honor and obey the Lord, this story should be a warning to us. The story should be a warning to us of how easy it is for us, even if we have put our faith in Jesus, to adopt the assumptions, the expectation, the beliefs, or the actions of the people around us, the culture around us, rather than from Scripture. As Tim Keller points out, we are all mostly far more affected by our culture than we think. We believe things are normal and make sense because of the time and place we live. And we must always be asking whether those things are biblical. In fact, the church in every age and in every country throughout history has shown a tendency to adopt at least some of the unbiblical and sinful assumptions of its culture. Look throughout all history, and we see this. Kingdom, power, and Christendom wove their way into Christians' thinkings and actions in the medieval era. The culture of the American South pre-Civil War led Christians to support chattel slavery. The culture or cultural customs in Africa and Southeast Asia lead some Christians to continue worshiping their tribal gods or to retain parts of Hinduism or Buddhism right alongside of Christ. Progressive Christianity today worships God and talks about what Jesus did for us, but it defines God and who he is and how he wants us to act according to 21st century cultural standards of love and justice and identity. Critiquing scripture for being a product of its time and simply replacing it with the assumptions of our time. How easy is it? And if if we can look throughout history and cultures that are different than us and quickly point out ways they have adopted that culture and brought it into their thinking and actions... Shouldn't we be willing to ask what ways our culture may have seeped into our thinking and our actions as well? As Tim Keller says, before we point the finger at anyone else, are we willing to ask, what blind spots do I have? Where might the assumptions of our day and our age or of our culture or of our group that we identify with influence my mind and my actions and my heart more than I realize? In our day and age, every single one of us needs to be on guard against the spirit of our age. Every one of us needs to be on guard against our culture's definition of of love and and acceptance and, and justice. But I wonder if for our church, if there are other things we also need to be on guard against, maybe that we are not as quick to ask about. For a church like ours, I wonder if at times we might slip into adopting attitudes or making decisions shaped more by Western expectations of wealth and how I should be able to spend my money, or by Republican politics, or by the priority of sports, things that maybe we agree with, we swim in, but are they impacting our hearts more than Scripture in some ways? We need to be willing to ask these hard questions, because... As D.L. Moody said in a quote that was brought up in Sunday school this morning, a ship was made to float on the water, but if the water gets into the ship, it sinks. And as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 4.4, our citizenship is in heaven. 
Our values, our beliefs, and our actions are to be shaped by heaven, not the desires or patterns of this world, such that our culture around us should think that the way we live and think is strange, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.4. And I think it's important for us to recognize also, isn't it, that when we do adopt unbiblical assumptions, that doesn't just impact us. It almost always has a negative spiritual impact on our kids, on our families, and our churches, and those around us. So the question is, if we're willing to ask, where are our blind spots? Where might we be influenced more by our culture than by Scripture? How do we fight against that? If this is a perennial temptation, if every age and culture is tempted to adopt some of the thinking of those around us, how do we fight against that? Well, of course, only by drinking deeply from God's Word. Only by reading and hearing what God himself has told us in his word will we know God as he is and will we know what he calls us to do and will we have a sharp sword to divide biblical truth from cultural assumptions in our minds and hearts. Now, Tara Lee Cobble is the host of the Bible Recap. She traveled the world for several years as a Christian musician and speaker and would often talk about the Lord from the stage as she would give concerts. But one day a pastor who was a friend of hers looked at her and he asked, Tara, have you actually read the Bible all the way through? She sort of waffled a bit and said, well, I think over time I've read most of it and pieced it together. And he looked at her intently and said rather intensely, read it. Let every word fall before your eyes and I would encourage you to say very little on stage until you've read it all first Kabul was startled but then she reflected if I haven't read the whole Bible how do I know I haven't said things that contradict parts of scripture so I read it I read it all the way through I realized I did not know God as I thought I did I realized I had only known fractions of him and he is so much more beautiful than I had known See, that's the process that we need. Because Jephthah's example is a warning to us. He knew tons about God. He knew all the details of how God had worked in history to save Israel. We might know about God. We might know the story of Jesus and what he has done. But do we know him and his word thoroughly so that it is what shapes our hearts? And that's what we need. We need to read his word and read it again. We need to let our eyes fall on every page. We need to submit our minds and hearts to it all. Because that is our only hope for being rescued from an accultured Christianity. Finally, I think there's one more warning for us in this passage. This passage warns us of the danger of not fully trusting the Lord. After all, why does Jephthah feel the need to make this vow in the first place? It's because he's not sure whether he can trust the Lord to deliver them or not. And so he seeks to make this vow to get God fully on his side. And whenever we do not fully trust God, we are going to be tempted to try to control things we can't control or try to use our prayers to persuade God to do what we want or to earn his favor so he'll work things out well for us as we want. And this past week I was reflecting on my own times of prayer And I was reflecting how I face at times a period of anxiety or 
difficulty and I start to pray, but my prayers only make me more anxious because I'm attempting to persuade God to do what I want him to do. And I realize I don't have an assurance that he will work things out the way I want him to. Our prayers cannot be an effort to persuade God to do what we want him to do, but an act of confident trust, bringing everything before the Lord in whom we trust because of his character. And brothers and sisters, if we struggle to trust the character of God, if we struggle to trust the Lord in what circumstances he brings us, then what we need to do is to look back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Romans 8, 31 and 32 tells us that God has definitively proven to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is for us and he will care for us because he has sent his own son to the point of the cross for us. And if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says in Romans 8. In other words, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, is God going to then neglect or refuse to give us what is good for our eternal souls? No. If God in his sovereign power has given up his own son for our sakes, is he too weak to work in or bring about circumstances that are exactly what his children need? No. By sending his own son to the cross, God has proven for us that he can be trusted, that his steadfast love for his people is for us. And so this morning, even as we examine our hearts and our lives for ways that we may mirror people around us more than Scripture, or we may fail to trust God's promises and His care for us, may this story of Jephthah draw us to the Word of God. May it draw our minds again forward to the power of the cross of Christ that proves to us God's steadfast love for us. And as it accomplishes for us in the blood of Jesus, The hope of salvation we find there for anyone who will look in faith to Jesus and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we see in this story a story that shocks us. And we wonder how a man could be so confused as to sacrifice his own daughter. A man from Israel. Father, would this be a reminder to us that it is easy for any of us to adopt some of the thinking and practices of our culture. Father, would you draw us to your word? Would we eagerly read your word and devour your word? Would we be quick to spot areas in our hearts and lives that do not match up with your word? May we be citizens of heaven shaped by your spirit. And Father, may... We, when we face difficulty or anxiety or doubt, may we look again to the cross of Jesus Christ, that we might trust your character, that our confidence would come from your heart and who you are and of your steadfast love for your people, so that we might trust Jesus in the power of his cross and what you have done for us there. We pray this in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. 
To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.